Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Monday, November the 9th. Coming up, we'll talk to our medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz, about the latest COVID headlines. Paul Delaney will tell us about Virgin's Hyperloop passing a significant milestone. And we'll also talk with Canada's travel guy, Jim Byers, about air travel in Canada and ongoing COVID concerns. That's all ahead on the pod right now. We got lots of ground to cover on the Corona front this afternoon, so let's welcome in 640 Toronto medical expert Dr. Brett Belchett. He's on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, let's start with the Peel region. Uh, Toronto, we of course remain in modified stage two until at least this uh, weekend, but Peel region, Dr. Belchett, had their restrictions removed this weekend only to have new ones introduced. It's creating a lot of confusion there in Peel region. Can you explain for us exactly what's going on there? Yeah, and, and I, I think it's, it's pretty understandable why people are confused. We're seeing a set of actions that are coming from the top, that are coming from the province, that are certainly conflicting with some of the messages that we had earlier in the pandemic in terms of what were the requirements to unroll restrictions or, or you know, at the, at the earlier stages of when restrictions were unrolled in the spring, uh, and then really kind of conflicting with, with what were the reasons why we put those restrictions back on when we tightened back to stage two. And then on top of that, now what you see is the city going in a different direction than the direction that the province has established. So what we've seen is the city look at this unrolling of restrictions in the face of uh, no turning down of case numbers, and in fact, in the face of a, a quite significant upturn in case numbers where most scientists are saying this is probably not the time to be unrolling restrictions due to the, this escalation in the pandemic. And what you're seeing is the city saying, we really just don't agree with this and we're going to take matters into our own hands and set up our own set of restrictions and our own set of rules because we really are concerned about the health and welfare in our own city here. Yeah, what do you think about that medically, though? I mean, the premier was just asked about this moments ago in his press conference, and he essentially said this proves the system as it's now set up is working, that they can take Peel out of modified stage two, but nobody knows their area better than local officials. But is there not a danger, do you think, a doctor, that we're going to get a bit of a patchwork throughout the province here where people get really confused? You know, Peel's doing this, but if I take a, I don't know, day trip to Toronto, it could be something different as opposed to something, you know, out in Durham region. Yeah, it certainly is a, a good uh, recipe for people to be confused and for people to not know what they're supposed to do in any given part of the province. Um, that being said, I do think there is something to be said for regionalized approaches to managing the pandemic. We're certainly seeing different levels of cases in different parts of the province. There are some parts of the province where the case numbers are still relatively decent, whereas in places like Peel and in the city of Toronto and in Ottawa, we're seeing quite awful amounts of cases. And we certainly don't want to penalize the entire province due to what's happening in these urban regions. So I, I do understand that. But I think there are some basics that I think should just be observed province-wide. I think the idea of having any kind of large gatherings indoors without masks is just not a smart thing. Uh, I don't care really what the case numbers are. Um, if we're going to be putting 50 people in an indoor space breathing together, it, it all it takes is one person in that space uh, to be sick. And all of a sudden, you've got a very large, significant outbreak. And you can turn a, a part of the province that is doing quite well into a part of the province that is doing quite poorly over night with that kind of an event. So I, I think there, there's probably a middle ground where we allow some regionalization, as I said, uh, but I do think there are just common sense measures that we need to say this is the baseline of what you can and can't do across the province while we're in a pandemic. And until we have a vaccine out there and, and you know, real, real belief that people aren't going to get sick with this, we kind of have to, we have to follow these precautions everywhere that we are. 
483. That's the case number in Toronto today. That's a new daily high, new daily uh, record for us. As I mentioned off the top, we're looking forward to this uh, weekend and restrictions being lifted and uh, Toronto getting taken out of modified stage two. Would it be your anticipation that uh, Toronto, considering the, the case volume and numbers right now, might follow the direction that we've just been talking about in Peel region? I think it's probably the direction things need to go. I, I think if you look at the case numbers in Toronto, we're seeing some of the worst numbers that we've ever seen. Uh, we're seeing transmission rates of this virus that are significantly ab- above that magic number of one. And when you're above that number of one, you're seeing an ever-expanding epidemic. When you're below one, you're seeing a shrinking epidemic, and we're certainly significantly above one. You're seeing record levels of positivity on tests. I've seen some of the data that are showing about 4% or so so of tests are coming back positive now, which means that if you walk into any given room, there's about a one in 25, one in 25 chance that any person in that room actually has coronavirus. This is not the time to be loosening restrictions. This is not the time to be putting people back into exercise classes, religious gatherings, uh, indoor dining bars, et cetera. I think, I think it's a recipe for us to end up, uh, I think, a couple of months down the road for us to end up in, in a complete lockdown again due to case numbers that are far worse than what we're seeing today. I think this is certainly the time to, at the very least, stay the course and possibly even tighten restrictions from where they are right now, not the opposite direction. Joined on the line by Dr. Brett Belchetz. Uh, Meantime, doctor, in the U.S., President-elect Biden, he is naming his coronavirus team today, and he, of course, has said that he will follow the doctors and follow the science. And since we're talking about uh, restrictions, possible uh, lockdowns, does that mean, do you think, that lockdowns, if they're going to follow the science and they're going to follow the advice of medical officials, that lockdowns and uh, restrictions are coming to U.S. cities and hotspots? I think it's certainly a possibility. It'll be really interesting to see what this council that that uh, Joe Biden is pointing together is going to recommend. Uh, you're looking at some of the top experts in medical practice and infectious diseases from around the world that he is assembling to, to build a plan. And what has been interesting when we've looked at the management of this pandemic uh, across the world Some parts of the world have succeeded through the use of very, very strict lockdowns. If you look at Australia and New Zealand, those are very good examples of that, where they had extreme lockdowns, but they worked. And in fact, people have very much returned to almost a semblance of normal life in those parts of the world. But then there are other parts of the world where there have never been complete lockdowns. So if we look at places like Taiwan and South Korea, they have actually successfully battled this virus and in fact have extraordinarily low cases and extraordinarily low death rates now. And again, are also returning to very close to a semblance of normal life. But they've managed to do this through extreme use of testing, contact tracing, isolating and quarantining of people that are sick. And so it'll be very interesting to see whether or not this panel that is assembling goes more towards the path of what we've seen in Australia and New Zealand or more towards what we've seen in Asian countries such as South Korea or Taiwan. But I think overall the feeling is that one way or the other, this is a good news story in that we are potentially looking at something that can start to bring this pandemic under control versus really what is starting to appear as a raging wildfire south of the border. You know, it's interesting, those two methods and how they uh, contrast. Uh, Do you favor or do medical officials favor one over the other, Dr. Belchetz? Because it it seems to me that uh, maybe perhaps, you know, a very uh, restrictive lockdown for a small time period, such as what Australia did, is maybe quicker and more cost effective than, uh, you know, going through uh, testing and finding, contact tracing and quarantining those that have been infected. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, to be honest, I, I don't. 
100 percent oppose either or 100 percent suppose 100 percent support either of those methods. I think what you need to do is decide which path you're going to go down and then really make yourself 100 percent committed to that path. So if you've decided lockdowns are the strategy, you have to have a complete and total lockdown like what they did in Australia and New Zealand to get to the point where you eradicate the virus and can go back to normal living. Um, and, and that does work, but you have to be committed. You can't make exceptions for private gatherings and religious gatherings and bars and restaurants and school and all these other things, because then it just doesn't work. It's a lot of suffering for nothing. And on the other approach, if you really want to follow uh, the path of contact tracing and testing and quarantining, you have to invest lots of money in hiring lots of people to do that contact tracing and the quarantining surveillance that needs to be done. You have to have a lot of technology that helps to make it happen. And you often have to have emergency suspensions of some of the things in our privacy laws that actually make some of that some of that uh, supervision impossible. So whichever path you go, I think so long as you're 100% committing to doing it properly, I think you can successfully battle this, this pandemic. You just have to be committed. All right. Just finally, they're not at 100%, but 90%. We're talking about uh, Pfizer, who's making headlines this afternoon after they've announced they have a vaccine that they believe to be 90% effective. What do we know about it? How excited should we be? Well, I, I think we should be quite excited. This is definitely a, a bit of good news. Uh, it's very preliminary. This is based on some of the earliest data that is available from those phase three trials. So this does not let us know whether or not that immunity is long-lasting and whether that effectiveness is long-lasting, which is one of the most important things to figure out. The other thing to be aware of is that this is data that came in the form of a press release. This wasn't a medical journal article with peer-reviewed information that scientists can then comment on. So we don't have enough information to say conclusively, yes, this is it, this is the magic bullet that's going to make a difference. But this is, to be honest, this is a huge, huge result so far. And, and I think it's a really big cause for all of us to be optimistic because if the studies do pan out and show that this does give long-lasting immunity at the rate of 90%, what that means is if this is a vaccine that the majority of the population goes out and receives, this will stop the pandemic in its tracks. This will be an effective treatment for it. Oh, fingers crossed. Dr. Brett Belchitz. Dr. Belchitz, appreciate the time as always. My pleasure. You have a great day. You as well. If you're stuck in traffic right now, Turn up your radio. You're going to want to listen to this, okay? Virgin, Richard Branson's company, celebrating a major milestone when it comes to the development of the Hyperloop. Paul Delaney is our expert in space. He's also, of course, with York University, their Department of Physics. He joins us now for more on this here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Paul, how are you? Oh, very good indeed, Jeff. Enjoying this wonderful observing weather. Oh, hasn't it been just blockbuster good the last couple of days I mean, it sure has we've, we've been up at the observatory every night and taking full advantage of it that's good good all right let's just backtrack if we can to start here for those that don't know or can't remember what exactly is this hyperloop it's a theoretical uh construct at this point in time other than a few test beds around the place but basically think of a very uh long narrow tube with uh, a cavity inside a, a bullet sort of sitting inside it which can move through a near evacuated space at speeds of literally hundreds of kilometers an hour so it's a futuristic rapid transit uh vehicle Okay, so how fast are we talking here in terms of, like, uh, if I want to go from Toronto to Montreal in the Hyperloop, do we know roughly how long it would take me to get there? 
So as long as they can keep uh, the vehicle running straight, so not too many curves, their maximum speed is around about 750 kilometers an hour. Wow. So what, Montreal is about 750 kilometers? So here to Montreal in less than an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you broke up there in how long? Uh, Less than an hour. Less than an hour. Nice. (laughs) And on the ground. (laughs) So, yeah. Exactly. All right. That's the big advantage to be able to cover great distances between cities uh, in almost the blink of an eye. Okay. And obviously, the concern is when you're going this fast is safety. And uh, they've uh, just passed a pretty important uh, milestone yesterday. The folks behind Hyperloop, tell us what they did. Well, they actually put people in their test vehicle. Uh, so they've, they've got this sort of, I think it's about 500 meters long, so it's not a very long run. But this was the first time where the uh, the uh, the cabin section was actually populated with people. So they're basically uh, they're two senior people in development and customer satisfaction, basically strapped them in, strapped themselves in, and convert, uh, traversed that 500 meters in literally a few seconds feeling the acceleration, feeling the deacceleration to actually travel down a Hyperloop. So it was a pretty special day for the folks out there at, uh, at Virgin. Okay, so many questions abound here regarding this test. First of all, who would volunteer for this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you what, if the people who are building it aren't prepared to get in it, I wouldn't get in it. So that's, uh, you know, in, in a way, it's a bit of marketing. They're showing confidence in the design that they have built. Uh, so... You know, it, it's a little bit like air travel, mate. I mean, you know, when you think back, you know, 70, 80 years ago, we, we jump on a plane traveling at, uh, you know, better part of 900 kilometers out without thinking. Back 60, 70 years ago, it wasn't that easy. And I'm sure the same sorts of concerns, safety concerns, were prevalent for the first passengers of aircraft as well. Yeah, good point. Got to be. I, I kind of thought maybe they got in the offices there at Virgin and they said, uh, Larry, uh, we drew straws. And uh, you're first up. Sorry. (laughs) So after they did the test, what was the results in terms of the people that got off the Hyperloop, those that volunteered for kind of this maiden uh, voyage? Were there any sort of side effects? Do we know, Paul? Well, uh, the first good thing is they did step off, and that was really yeah. great. <laughs> they went from A to B flawlessly. Uh, yeah, from what we can gather, uh, the process of the acceleration, because I mean, if you're going to go from sort of standing still to several hundred kilometers an hour in a few seconds, there's a lot of acceleration there. They didn't push this vehicle yesterday uh, to its, its limit. So they, uh, they are commenting that it felt not much different to, you know, when you're taxiing down the runway preparing to take off, you know, how you feel being pushed back into your seat because of the acceleration of the aircraft, you get up to about sort of uh, a little over 1G of acceleration. It's not terribly strenuous. I'm gathering that's about what they felt yesterday. But the trick is to smoothly ramp up to a constant speed and then to smoothly ramp down again. And that's what happened yesterday, or I actually think it was the day before, on this Hyperloop. So the acceleration, deacceleration was all smooth, controlled, and the two folks who got off basically said, fabulous. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, that's what I was thinking about the braking, because they often say that uh, when it comes to a racing, it's not the acceleration, it's uh, not the go, it's uh, the stop that <laughs> you got to really, really worry about here. So, I mean, again, if I was going traveling from Toronto to Montreal in the Hyperloop, I mean, would they have to start hitting the brakes around Kingston? 
<laughs> Probably not quite that bad. Okay. Uh, but you, know, you, you certainly do want to gradually uh, ramp it down. And again, it's like an aircraft. You know, When you're uh, at altitude, you're traveling at close to 900 kilometers an hour. When you're hitting the tarmac, you're still doing 150 to 200, and you can feel the deacceleration of the braking uh, process and you know, the, the reverse thrust and so on. There you're feeling a deacceleration that's closer to 2 Gs twice the gravitational acceleration of the planet Earth. So the same sort of principles are applying here, that you know, when you're ramping up and then when you're slowing down, you've got to figure out the distances given the acceleration that you want your passengers to uh, you know, be subjected to and still keep them comfortable. So I haven't done the math, mate. I, I don't know how far out you have to do it, but you certainly would begin to slow down uh, several, you know, dozens and dozens of kilometres away from Montreal so that the acceleration that the passengers are feeling is modest, nothing more than what you feel on an aircraft. And that's the trick. They yeah, want sure. They feel very much like air travel in terms of the acceleration and the deacceleration. And once you're up at speed, you can pour coffee. You can, you can do whatever you like because, you know, no change in speed means no acceleration, no forces are acting on you. It's just like running, uh, w- w- uh, sitting in an aircraft. Interesting. Okay, but once they do ramp up to a top speed and then they have to, uh, you know, hit the brakes and come to a stop, is the concern on the human body, and you and I have talked about this several times in depth, when, you know, astronauts are coming back uh, from outer space and what that does, the gravitational pull on their bodies. Uh, I've had interviews and talks with Commander Chris Hadfield uh, about that, what he has gone through. Could people go through something somewhat similar, getting off this uh, hyperloop, do you think? No, not really. Uh, I mean, the astronauts are in Earth orbit in a zero-gravity environment for days, weeks, potentially months on end. That really does change the physiological state of the human body, and that transition back to 1G here on Earth is what really you know, plays a little bit of havoc on the astronauts, including Chris. I mean, you know, he's often commented that his last tour of duty aboard the ISS, it took him well over a month. In fact, he's often said two to three months before he really felt accustomed to living on Earth again. Mm-hmm. When you're traveling in this hyperloop, your gravity isn't going away. So again, once you've gotten rid of the acceleration up to speed, once you've done with the deacceleration, and that's only going to last literally, you know, tens of seconds to a few minutes. The rest of the time, it, it's like traveling on a train, traveling in an aircraft. So no, there aren't going to be any physiological changes that are going to arise from the, the, the traveling in the hyperloop. Now, this obviously, Paul, might not happen, sadly, in our lifetimes, but do you think this is the future of travel? Because, I mean, you think about the implications of being able to go to and fro uh, that quickly. That changes the dynamic of work and uh, where you live, that sort of thing. Exactly. I think it is coming. I don't think it's around the corner, and I think its biggest draw will be traveling these big distances. Imagine, if you will, just here in Ontario, if you had a hyperlink from Barrie to Toronto, you would be doing that in tens of minutes, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, you could be, tra- you could have, uh, you know, your, your abode well north of Aurelia, keep going north, and the hyperlink will bring you into Toronto in tens of minutes. It's those types of distances which I think the hyperloop really 
uh, stands a chance of winning the hearts and minds and the pocketbooks of people. I don't think you're going to see this you know, overtaking the TTC and our subway system because you know, you, you, there's too many turns involved here. You've got to have straight runs for these hyperloops to be able to get up to significant speeds. Otherwise, as you implied earlier, it takes such a long time to make a, a turn. If you're traveling at 700-odd kilometers an hour to change your direction, even by a subtle amount, requires a long, sweeping curve. Mm. We're both trying to turn right. Uh, so, you know, it, this this type of transportation will work really well between very distant locations where you can just cut the travel time to not zero, obviously, but just a very, very small amount of time. It is coming, but I don't think you're going to see it in the next 10 to 20 years, really. Yeah, does the uh, do you know the topography favor a hyperloop or a hyperlink between? Because we always talk about a bullet train from say Windsor, you know, the far west of this province, all the way out to say uh, Montreal. Uh, is that achievable? I would say, you know, I'm an astronomer. I look up. I sure. <laughs> but, but, but from what I've read about, uh, you know, the dynamics of the Hyperloop and the engineering, there really is nothing to get in their way. And even going over mountains, I mean, it'd be easy to go through mountains. If you can keep it as flat as you can, like the railway system, they work best on the flat. Uh, but they can go over mountains. Well, the same sort of uh, logic applies here for the Hyperloop. If you can have a reasonably straight run on fairly flat ground from an engineering and therefore a cost perspective, that's the best. All right. My apologies for that last question. Next time we have a, a gardening expert on, I'm going to ask him something about looking up into space. <laughs> Not a problem, Jeff. Okay. Paul, pleasure as always. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye. Be well. There's Paul Delaney, our space expert. He's with the Department of Physics at York University. And there's news out of Ottawa that the federal government is planning some financial relief for Canadian Airlines. Let's bring in Canada's travel guy, Jim Byers, is back with us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jim, good afternoon. How are you? Pretty good. How's it going, Jim? I'm okay, thank you. Uh, Before we get to this uh, relief news, we do have some news from Porter Air this afternoon to report on. What's going on with them? Yeah, they... uh... Boy, they had to suspend their operations yet again. Um, you know, they stopped flying, I think it was March 21st, and then they kept saying, well, you know, maybe April, maybe May, maybe June. And and the last one had been, I think, December 15th. As of yesterday, they were going to start up again December 15th. They put out a memo this morning, late this morning, saying, uh, sorry, uh, you know, COVID's still a problem in, in most of a lot of places that we fly. Uh, still lots of travel restrictions with the border in the U.S. and such. So now they've pushed back their uh, flights until February 15th, which means realistically, I mean, that's, a, that's almost a year's worth without flying, you know, mm. and that's, uh, it, it's very close to 11 months. And that's, it's just such a, it's a terrible thing, you know, and, and it's not just, you know, and we've talked about this before, Jeff, it's, it's not just that some rich airline owner suffers, it's, the flight attendants and the ground crew and the right. and the people that supply the food and, and the, the restaurants and in the places and the destinations where the flights are going to and the hotels, you know. So there's this there's this domino effect on down the line. So when this happens it's a it's a pretty terrible situation. I mean we keep we keep saying this, but it's a, it's it's not pretty. Has it disproportionately hit an airline like uh, Porter, where a lot of their flights, I know uh, a lot of folks out of Toronto would take a hopper flight to New York for business or or pleasure, and that obviously has not uh, been happening with uh, COVID and the border shutdown. Exactly, and that's what I was thinking with their, you know, their particular situation is is a little bit, is a lot trickier. They do have some flights to Florida, 
uh, around Daytona Beach area. They've got a flight to Myrtle Beach. But most of the ones they go to are uh, other places where there have been problems and places that rely on heavy, heavily on business climate and, and business and meetings, those really aren't happening very much in the age of Zoom. Uh, and with the U.S. border closure, it's just it's just killing them. And uh, they really don't have the outlets that, you know, maybe in Air Canada can at least start flying people to Mexico or WestJet can fly somebody to Jamaica. Porter doesn't have that kind of option. So with this announcement from Porter today, is their future, is it really up in the air? Uh, pardon the pun? <sighs> I don't think so. Um, you know, they, they, I think they have relatively deep pockets. I can't speak for them uh, uh, specifically, but the Duluth family has always done, uh, they've done pretty well for themselves. I think it's encouraging, uh, Jeff, as you mentioned at the, at the start, that um, there was talk and announcement again yesterday on a Sunday afternoon. Ottawa loves to do this to journalists, you know. They love issuing <laughs> reports on a Friday at, at 4 o'clock, you know. It's, it, it's a sickness. Um, so, you know, I was looking at my email yesterday, and suddenly the, the government, there's no specific amount of money that's been promised yet. But they said, we recognize the airlines are, are, have been devastated. We need to help them. We are going to help them. We're going to sit down soon and uh, form a, either a task force or, or start chatting with them. Again, there was no money actually mentioned, but they said they will help. Okay, so there, there is a recognition here that this uh, industry is in deep, deep, serious trouble because, of course, WestJet, uh, they've announced they're scaling back on flights and, and their operations. We just discussed a Porter here. So although there's maybe not a lot of detail right now, there is an indication from Ottawa that uh, help is coming. Yeah, and it's the first time that they've been that definitive. And um, they did, of course, uh, or, or not of course, but they did uh, as part of this, uh, Jeff, they did bring in and, and stated very clearly uh, a couple of conditions. One of them you mentioned a second ago that routes that have been suspended, if, if not necessarily all of them, but you know routes have to be reintroduced um, because you know there are people in small communities or uh, you know smaller cities around Canada that have been uh, more or less stranded uh, by a lack of air service. And as well, they said there have to be refunds. So anyone who had uh, a canceled flight due to COVID-19 uh, will have to get a refund, or they're not going to give the airlines to any money. Okay, so there are so-called strings attached here then, uh, Jim. Very much so, very much so. And I think they almost had to do that. You know, there's no way, Jeff, they could have stood up and, and, and uh, the, the howling from consumers would have just been, you know, a furious din if they had said, you know, we're going to give airlines all that money. And, and by the way, uh, you know, all those mom and pop uh, operations and uh, tra travel agents and families around the country who are out two or $3,000, eh, you're not going to get your money back. So as a condition, they say, we will grant you some money, but you have to refund customers. All right, because there have been uh, airlines that, uh, I mean, the airlines continue to sell uh, tickets and uh, canceling flights, correct? Flights that they're, when they're selling the tickets, they're not even sure if they'll be able to get off the ground? Um, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, you could say that. Um, I, I think they're being optimistic, and, and in a way, I don't blame them. Uh, nobody really, I wouldn't say nobody, but I don't think too many people saw the, the, the wave, the second wave or third wave, wherever it is we've got here in Canada, being quite as sharp as it is. I certainly didn't. And I think the airlines were optimistic, you know, having bled money for uh, the last eight or nine months and just, you know, lost billions and billions of dollars. I don't really blame them for being optimistic, but I can certainly see, you know, people saying, now, wait a minute, you know, I, I put down $2,500 from my flight to, to, to Mexico or, or Costa Rica or Vancouver to go see my grandmother, and you cancel my flight, and where's my money? And that's where these refunds come in, I think, from the federal government. 
All right, but is that a case of buyer beware at this point? Uh, should we maybe know better? I mean, everybody maybe wants to get off to a sunny destination, or they desperately do want to see a family member abroad uh, somewhere and are willing to quarantine uh, when they come back. But the, listen, this has been all over the news, uh, you know, for the last six, uh, seven months. I mean, some people are calling this a bit of a bait and switch, but should this again be buyer beware? I, I think you have to be a little bit careful. I mean, uh... I can certainly see where consumers are coming from, and there's this uh, lecture at McGill University in their global aviation leadership program. He was certainly using that uh, bait-and-switch analogy. You know, in, in his words, he says, the industry kind of crosses their fingers, and they hope people are going to buy, and then all of a sudden, you know, the flight gets canceled, and, and he called it, you know, misleading advertising. And I can see where people are coming from, but, you know, the, the airlines are trying to sell money. They don't want to cancel those flights. Uh, it's the last thing they want to do. Um, should they be more cautious? Perhaps. Uh, but I think they're doing the best they can under pretty difficult circumstances. That having been said, I think they have to give people their refunds. And if this goes through the way Otto was talking about, those refunds are going to have to happen. And I think that's a huge relief for a lot of people. Uh, just finally, Jim, we were talking earlier this afternoon on the show about this vaccine from uh, Pfizer. It's got a 90 percent uh efficacy rate, uh, if you will. So people are very excited about this uh, vaccine. Is that the sort of thing that the airline uh, needs to see the airline industry? Yes, I think so, for sure. I think there's, you know, the, a lot of people are willing to go with uh, minimal uh, steps in place or if there's relatively good uh, contact tracing. You know, a lot of millennials especially have said, you know, they're lining up at the gates. They, they want to get out and, and, and travel again, and older folks are being a little bit more cautious. But if and when a vaccine does come, and of course, you know, we don't know how many uh, we're, we're going to get. We don't know who's going to get them first. We don't know when, you know, how effective exactly they're going to be at this stage, although it sounds encouraging. But, yeah, I think, you know, if, if this starts to happen early in the new year, I think within a couple of months, people will start feeling a lot more confident about flying. And that's going to do a heck of a lot of good for a heck of a lot of people in this country. Jim, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Always. Okay, Jeff, take care. Be well. There's a Canada's travel guy, Jim Byers. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.